We are in the Gospel of John, so if you will turn with me to John chapter 16. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. We're going to be looking at, the, for the most part, the entire chapter of uh, chapter 16. We're going to look at all of it. I just want you to imagine this scenario. Imagine a team. The team's losing. It's not looking pretty. They're losing. Time is running out. It's not looking good. This team is outmatched. But one thing this team is not, they're not outcoached. And so this coach, she knows what to do. She has a trick up her sleeve. She sees it in the player's eyes that they're afraid that they're going to lose, that they don't have what it takes to win the game. But she has a plan. And so as the clock is ticking, as the game is slowly almost running out, as the team is losing, she begins to throw a fit. She screams at the ref. She throws up her hands And eventually, she is thrown out of the game. So right before she's thrown out of the game, she grabs her team together, and she looks at them, and she says, it's fine. Everything is going to be all right. Everything you need to succeed is right before you. It's great. Enjoy the game. And then she left. And people said, as she left, you could see a smile on her her face as she left. Now, good coaches know this. Good coaches rarely get thrown out of games unintentionally. You either get thrown out to protest the refs or you get thrown out of the game to inspire your players. That's one last kind of card that a good coach will play. To inspire the team, to fire up the team, to motivate the team. Sometimes a coach has got to go. Well, Jesus is better than a coach. He is, after all, not a coach. He is the Christ. But John 16, there is some eerie similarities between a coach getting thrown out of a game and Christ, who he once again in our chapter reminds his disciples amidst their trauma and fear. It just looks like they're not going to win. And he once again assures them in this lengthy sermon that he gives, this lengthy talk from chapter 13 to chapter 16, He assures them that he's got to get thrown out of the game in order for them to win. It's no accident. Jesus has got to go. He's got to leave. Uh, In verse 7, I'm just going to read it. We're going to read this chapter. But in verse 7, it kind of summarizes their fears, but the hope in the midst of their fears. Verse 7 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that Christ, that I, go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus, he's got to go. It's part of the plan. It's part of the game plan. The very thing the people of God need is not for Christ to stay with them. He's got to go because in his going, he's going to send them a Helper. 
And chapter 16 lays out what the advantages are for God's people in the midst of their fears, in the midst of their worries, in the midst of them not even looking like they're going to finish the game and win the game and overcome the enemies, what the advantages actually are when Jesus leaves and sends the helper. So the big idea, and it's going to move in kind of three stages. The big idea is simply this. The advantage of Jesus leaving is that the Holy Spirit will, and we're going to look at it in three kind of stages, three movements. First, the Holy Spirit will expose. We'll see that in verse 4 to 11. Then the Holy Spirit will guide. See that in 12 to 15. Then the Holy Spirit will transform. And in some way, there's a progression to the Spirit's work that I think you're going to notice. So let's look first at the Spirit who will expose. We'll start in the latter half of verse 4, which is where we left off last week. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, that's the helper, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So all throughout this chapter, Jesus is repeating what he's said earlier, which is, he's got to go. He, in one sense, to just keep working this analogy out, he's got to get thrown out of the game, because when he gets thrown out of the game, through his death, he's going to send the helper, the spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so he first acknowledges their sorrow, their inevitable sorrow in verses 6 and 7. And then he says he's going to send the Spirit to them. And then he spends most of the time, starting in verse 8 all the way to verse 11, explaining what the Spirit is going to do when he sends the Spirit. And you see this threefold sort of ministry of the Spirit in how he's going to expose uh, the world. So it says that he's going to expose them in relation to their sin, in relationship uh, to their righteousness and in relationship to judgment. And you, you see grammatically how this works itself out. So he lays it out, sin, righteousness, judgment, and then he, in verses 9, 10, and 11, explains what he means by sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the world, to just kind of pause on the first, the how is he going to convict the world of sin? So the world is blind, blind to their sin. And Jesus says, when he leaves, he's going to send the helper, the spirit to come and expose the world to their sin. Uh, A few years ago, I was flying back from, uh, on a flight from Paris to New York. I was visiting some supporter workers. And so we were flying back. And when you go from like Europe to America, you got to go through customs. And it's kind of crazy because you got to get on another plane. And so you're getting your 
your baggage, and then you got to do all these sorts of things, and it was crazy, and we're trying to get to the next flight, and I remember I'm sitting, waiting for my luggage to come off the, um, off the little thing, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm standing next to this guy who I've never met. He was on the same plane as me, and he smelled horrible. And I remember just standing there close, like looking at him, and then I kind of did one of these things, politely, kind of moving away. And then I remember him looking at me, and he was doing the same thing. He was like moving away from me. Then I realized something. I kind of finally, I was kind of so hectic getting on the plane, I realized, and here's the detail I didn't share. These were COVID days. So from that seven, eight-hour flight, I had a mask on the entire time. And I realized something. It wasn't him who smelled. It was me. I just didn't know it. And it wasn't until he started moving away from me that he exposed that I was the person who had terrible breath to which I grabbed my bags and ran to brush my teeth, right? Sometimes we are just so caught up in our own little worlds that we need someone outside of ourselves to expose what was there all along. That's the imagery here that comes to mind when it comes to the Spirit and his ministry of exposing the world to their sin. The Spirit comes and puts a beacon of light and sort of opens up the sin and the brokenness and the evil within the human heart and exposes it. It puts that before us. That's the first thing. The Spirit exposes our sin, points out, and sort of fills out within our eyes the horror of our sin. But then, second, he exposes our righteousness, or really what he's talking about is our lack of righteousness. I think we naturally, when it comes to our righteousness, we we, we view our lives, sort of righteousness being our moral goodness. We, We think of our moral goodness And we think of it like we're in class and God is grading us. And so we're like, well, we might not be that A student, but we're a C minus student and we all know that C's get degrees. And so we're like, well, we might not be the best as it relates to our righteousness. We might not be the greatest in the classroom in regards to our moral goodness, but we'll get a passing grade. We assume it. Or we think, ah, God's got a I mean, we're all pretty broken people. God definitely grades on a, on a curve, right? And so we're like all, you know, F students, but like God can't flunk us all. And yet the Spirit comes and he changes our perception of what truly is righteous. And that's why he's filling in this conversation and explains it as uh, saying, concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. He's, he's pointing out that His resurrection, when he dies and goes to the Father, only those who are truly righteous see the Father. Jesus' resurrection, we sometimes just focus on Jesus' resurrection as a mean of him triumphing over death, which is true. But, But really, it is God's vindication that Jesus is the righteous one. And so Jesus is saying that the standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. You've heard that old saying, to err is human. Not biblically true. To err is Christ. And so, even on our most charitable days, even when the sort of thermometer of our goodness is heating up, 
we lack righteousness. On our best days, we try to fake it. That's what self-righteousness is. We pretend that we're more righteous than we actually are. And so if you've experienced that thought, when you realize, I'm not very morally good, my righteousness, in contrast to Christ, is falling short. If you've ever felt that way, had that thought, that's the work of the Spirit. And then lastly, he says, not only will the Spirit come and expose us related to sin and related to our lack of righteousness, it says the Spirit exposes judgment. And then verse 11 kind of fleshes out what that means, and he connects that judgment to the judgment that's going to fall on the ruler of this world, namely Satan. So when Jesus dies, Satan thinks he's won. He thinks he's trapped Satan back uh, Satan thinks he's trapped. Jesus kind of pushed him back in, uh, pushed him against the wall. And yet, Christ's death is the very thing that conquered Satan. And so what Jesus is saying is, in the way in which I have judged Satan by defeating him through my death will be a reminder and a promise that I will judge the world as well. So if the the resurrection of Christ is a promise that we too in Christ will be raised. The judgment that comes on Satan is a promise that he will, in the end, judge the wicked. Now, I'm sort of aware that eternal judgment on the wicked, not a very popular message these days. And yet, There's something, I think, deep in the conscience of all humanity that we want the wicked to be judged. We don't want injustice to keep going on. There's something deep within our fairness meter, our justice meter, that wants justice to come on the wicked, on the evil. I just think it's hard to come to grips to think that we are the wicked or the evil. And yet the Spirit comes, he exposes our sin, he tills the soil of our heart and exposes our lack of righteousness in contrast to Christ's righteousness and reminds us that God will defeat evil, promised and secured that in his defeat of Satan himself. So the Spirit, in one sense, you could think of him this way, the Spirit first comes to the soul of a man and a woman. And first, before he heals a man or woman, he wounds a man or a woman. The Spirit is the scalpel of God in the soul of humanity to expose us of our sin, our unrighteousness, and that God would be right in judging us. That's why Jesus got to go. It's why he's got to get thrown out of the game because the Spirit works to expose our pride and remind us that apart from Christ, we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. That's the first movement. The first movement is the Spirit comes, exposes sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. But that's not all he does. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We'll stop there. So, Jesus has lots more to tell to his disciples, but they're not ready for it. They'll only be ready for it when he leaves and sends the Spirit. And then he calls the Spirit the Spirit of all truth. And this truth teller, this Spirit who is the author of truth, he's going to guide them. Do you see that there? He's going to guide them into all truth. Verse 13. Now, all does not mean all, right? He's not going to, the Spirit is not coming when Jesus leaves to guide you into all truth as it relates to pre-calculus or finance or you name it. So all does not in that sense mean all. So the question is, all relates to what? What is the Spirit going to come and guide the disciples and therefore us into truth? What is it related to? Let me read 13 through 15 once again. I'm going to emphasize some words to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears me speak, he will declare to you the things that are to come related to his death and resurrection. He will glorify me. The spirit will glorify Christ, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine, therefore I say, Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see what the Spirit is doing? The Spirit is said to come, and when he comes, he's going to glorify Christ by declaring Christ to the disciples and therefore us. Three times we see this language. The Christ comes to declare, 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 declare. The Spirit will declare And glorify Christ by explaining the person and work of Christ. So the Spirit comes to kind of expose, to to work in our hearts, as a sort of divine scalpel to expose us of our sin and our need for a Savior. And then the Spirit comes and he shines a spotlight on Christ as the Savior. That's the second movement we see here. Uh, for, for, for a few years, uh, my wife and I were on staff with the Navigators. And the na- headquarters of the Navigators is in this place called Glen Airy in Colorado Springs. It's right by the Garden of the Gods. If you've ever been there, it is absolutely gorgeous. And I was told that it was gorgeous. I'd seen pictures that it was gorgeous. But we flew in at night and we drove to Glen Airy in the pitch dark. It was like, 11 p.m. when we finally arrived. And so we, we get to this cabin on this property and we walk in and I don't see anything. It does, it's just dark. I don't think this is a pretty place at all. And then we walk into our cabin and there's a floodlight on the cabin. But it's not pointed down so I could walk into the kind of cabin. The floodlight is pointed up towards something 10 feet away from this cabin. Like three, 400 foot tall orange sandstone. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 
I never knew it was there, but you stand back and all of a sudden you're just staring at the enormity of the beauty of this rock. I'm not even thinking about the light. All I'm doing is staring at the rock. The light is the means from which me to enjoy the rock. That's the image that we have here as it relates to how the Spirit glorifies Christ. The Spirit is like a light, a floodlight that shines a light of illumination into the world such that in one sense we don't even realize the Spirit is there. We just are captivated by Christ. The Spirit shines a light on Christ. So the Spirit has never run to me. You never see in the Bible the Spirit say, come, come to me. It's always run to Jesus, experience Jesus, find hope in Jesus. But the Spirit is there in the background the entire time, illuminating the person and work of Christ. So, so if you're here today and you're not sure what to think about God, our prayer as a church is that the Spirit would do this very work right now. That he would illuminate the beauty of Jesus Christ. That you can put your trust and faith in Christ and find a friend in Jesus. Find salvation and hope and redemption in him. And for the rest of us, let me just encourage us. There's a lot of talk about what does it look like to be spirit-filled? Like, what does it look like to be a spirit-filled church? What does it look like if you come to church and you're like, I'm certain the spirit is moving? Or if you're in a prayer gathering and you're like, oh, the spirit is moving. Sometimes we speak of it kind of solely in emotional terms, feeling terms. Let me just give you a Bible verse that talks specifically about what it looks like to be a spirit-filled church. Ephesians 5, chapter 18. Go there. Go Go to Ephesians 5 for a moment. I'm going there too. Verse 18. There's a contrast. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So there it is. Be filled with the Spirit. He's, this is a Paul writing to the church, and he's talking about not just individuals, but also the church being filled with the Spirit. And the question is, what does it look like to experience a filling of the Spirit? And I think, you just keep reading, verses 19 through 21 tells us a glimpse of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want to know what a Spirit-filled church looks like? It kind of looks like a musical church, doesn't it? They're singing songs of gratitude, of thankfulness, of praise to God. They can't get enough of God for what he's done, particularly, you'll notice, particularly for the salvation brought on by Christ. So it's a a church that sings and enjoys and has gratitude for all of the ways in which Christ is working. 
But this gratitude, look at it. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks. This is a really hard word right after giving thanks. Giving thanks in the good times, in the sometimes times. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. A spirit-filled church is a church that in all circumstances and at all times is giving thanks to God because they are delighting their hearts and minds and soul in all that Christ has done to save us and deliver us and redeem us and transform us and then equip us and send us out into the world as ambassadors for Christ. And then it goes on, not only are they gratitude and, and singing and praising, they also, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a church that is manifesting the spirit-filled life as they love one another. As they don't think, well, what's best for me is what's best for everyone. But they do the reverse. What's best for me is what's best for you. And the primary way that I want to love you is by first serving you and submitting to your needs, your wants. Before I pray for me, I want to pray for you. The Spirit works to illuminate Christ in a church such that we are preoccupied with Christ. That's how you know the Spirit is working. When the intention is not on us, but the intention is on Christ and it manifests in these various, we could call it, the, the fruit of the Spirit, various characters of Christ, various preoccupations with the person and work with Christ. And it can happen as individuals as well. I mean, I'll just give you one example what, what this spiritual life kind of looks like. It doesn't look like a life without sin. Just the other day, I was having a conversation with someone and I said something that it doesn't matter, they thought it was nothing. But I knew instantly that I was bragging. I knew instantly that it was another manifestation of my pride. And I was just frustrated with myself. And I just remember thinking like, gosh, again? Like, why can't I just put this thing to death? Like, why? Why did I have to just brag in this moment? This is ridiculous. I'm a grown man. I had all these thoughts. And I'm wallowing in self-pity. And then this thought comes into my mind. Stop. Stop wallowing. Stop thinking about your sin. Run. Run to Jesus and find love and care and goodness and salvation. You see, we, we think of, oh, this is a spirit-filled church or a spirit-filled individual because look how holy they are. Look how sinful. Not necessarily. The spirit works in our lives that when we do sin, he shines a beacon of hope and says, don't run away from Christ. Don't, don't try to clean yourself up, but run to Christ. And find the hope and love and salvation that's only found in him. The Spirit comes to expose. The Spirit comes to guide. Now lastly, and this is the longest section, the Spirit comes, he comes to transform. Verses 16 through the end of the chapter. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that you say to us? A little while, and you see me, and, you, and we will not see you. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? 
we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you ask nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, ah, now you speak plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the longest section. It will not be the longest point. But it's interesting that This is the sort of end of this speech. If you look in verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, Jesus now turns to pray. And starting in chapter 13 and ending in chapter 16, Jesus bookends this long speech, this upper room discourse, with a reminder that they are going to abandon him. So at the end of chapter 13, Jesus looks at Peter and says, I know you're zealous, Peter. I know you think that you're like, you know, top-tier disciple here, but you're going to deny me. And then here at the end, Jesus reminds them, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will scatter each to his own home and will leave me alone. So bookending this is a reminder of the disciples' failure. Not great hope. Not great news. When Jesus is most vulnerable, he's basically saying, you are going to be most unavailable. And it sort of gets worse from there. If you go back to verse 16, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And a little while and you will see me, right? Now you see me, now you don't. Like, you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, he's like, you Houdini or something. And they're rightfully like, we have no idea what you're talking about. You can just imagine Jesus says this kind of vague sentence and they're all like whispering like what the heck is he talking about like this doesn't make any sense so they're talking and jesus perceives that they're utterly confused and says is that what you're confused about you're confused about what i just said and what it means by a little while and then you would think jesus would go okay i know you guys are dull okay i'll explain it to you all right all right get your pen and paper out okay i'll explain what i mean by a little while and you'll well you won't see me then you'll see me 
He doesn't do that, does he, right? All he says is, yep, you're going to be sad. And then I'm going to give you this illustration about a woman giving birth. You're like, what the, what? Why are you doing that? And then he reminds them once again, oh yeah, I'm leaving. And there he's kind of talking about his ascension, starting in verse 23 through 28. He he says, I've come from the Father in the incarnation to the world. Now I'm going back to the Father in the ascension. And I love it. In verse 23, they're like, oh, now you're talking clearly. No, Jesus isn't. They're still confused. And Jesus knows they're still confused. Yes, they say like, oh, we, we know that you're coming from God. So they, they get like, you know, a passing grade in one sense. But Jesus subtly rebukes them in 31, right? Do you, do you really believe after I just said that? And then he reminds them that they're going to abandon him. Their faith at this point is shaky at best. They still don't get it, do they? They still don't get the plan. Jesus, time and time again, is saying, I got to go. It's part of the plan. It's better for you that I go. And I'm telling you what this helper is going to do for you. It's for your advantage that I go. And they still don't get it. They want Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem to reign, judge all of God's enemies, to sit on the Davidic throne and usher in the Messianic kingdom. They're like, do that, Jesus. That's what we want. That's what we need you to do. And Jesus says, well, I am going to do that. Just not in the way that you want me to do it. And then he ends, he ends with what, and maybe this isn't a great illustration. He ends Jesus in chapter 16 with what only I can describe as the greatest mic drop of all times. He talks Multiple times about their sorrow, about this joy that he's going to bring, about the tribulation and hardship that they're going to experience. And then he says, oh, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is going to the cross. The world is going to crucify Christ. The world's going to throw everything at Jesus. They're going to insult him. They're going to use the most brutal execution device ever conceived to murder the Messiah. And it's going to look like the world's going to win, isn't it? It's going to look as if Jesus failed. But the death of Christ, which then precedes his resurrection, is the means by which he will overcome the world. This is completely backwards. Because what Christ is saying is, I'm going to overcome the world by being crushed by the world. I'm going to overcome the world by submitting to the world and dying for the world. That's how Christ is going to overcome the world, by succumbing to it. You'd think that Christ, the Messiah, would kind of be led out with a chariot, a king's chariot, Greater than Solomon's chariot. But he's led out of this world, not on a chariot, but on a cross. And so what the Spirit does is takes what looks like sadness and what looks like defeat and applies it to a person's heart 
such that they are transformed to realize that what looked like sorrow and failure is actually victory. That is the transformation that Jesus is talking about. There's all these echoes of kind of resurrection life that is going to take place in Christ that he's now going to apply to the church. And that's why he used this really, really interesting illustration. He, he talks about their sadness. He talks about how he's going to bring joy out of the sadness. And then he goes, all right, I, I've got an illustration for you. I'm going to give you an illustration about a, a woman. And I can't speak firsthand about this, okay? So you, I should not speak firsthand about how much pain it is for a woman to give birth. No idea. But I have been there four times. And I can at least say that it looks painful, okay? I think that's, that's right. And I also know that what looks like painful when the baby does come out and, you know, the, the nurse, the doctor gives the baby to the woman, I promise you that the pain, it's just weird, it like just falls into the background. And the, the joy that is experienced in that moment just overcomes that sorrow. And Jesus says, that is the sort of transformation that me going is going to not merely purchase, but is going to be applied to your life. We live a sort of Venn diagram. We we, we live in hardship. We live in the world with hardship. Chapter 16 talks about the world will hate you in chapter 15. So we live in that world. And yet we live, if you put your trust and faith in Jesus, in Christ's kingdom. And there's this overlap, isn't there? in which we're living in both simultaneously. That's why he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. He's saying that you are going to have hardship. The world is going to hate you. And yet he's saying that because you are in Christ's kingdom, because Christ overcame, he takes his victory, his overcoming the world, and he applies it to the Christian such that at this moment, if you are in Christ, You will not be more resurrected when you're physically resurrected than you are right now. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection right now. You are right now, spiritually speaking, in the heavenly realms. You are right now already resurrected, though you will one day be resurrected as well. So what Christ is saying is, I win. My going is my victory but I'm not just going to say I win. I'm going to apply my victory to all those who put their trust and faith in me. And that's how I'm going to transform sadness into joy. It's how I'm going to give you peace, even though these are not peaceful times. I'm going to apply my victory and give it to you. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Christ overcame victoriously sin. So if you are in Christ, it means you have victory over sin. You have victory over darkness. You have victory over your weaknesses. You have victory over despair. You have victory over wondering, am I good enough? You have victory over this world, over Satan, over the flesh. You have victory in Christ. So every victory that Christ has, you are in him and therefore he applies that victory to you. There's a sense in which you can say, in Christ, I too have overcome the world. 
That's why this is such a mic drop. Because as he talks about him going, sending the helper, he's saying that helper is going to unify you with Christ such that his victory now is yours. So, you want your best life now? It's only possible in and through Jesus Christ. You want your best life now? It's only because Jesus left. Coaches know this. Coaches know this. Great coaches know this. Sometimes you got to go. Sometimes you got to motivate the team by walking out of the gym. And that was the plan. It was always the plan. Christ would come and he wouldn't stay. He would die, be resurrected, and he would do so in order to send us the Spirit, a helper, to seal Christ's work in our lives and then take a fearful, scattered people and transform them into courageous, defiant saints. And Christ did this because he left. His leaving wasn't just his victory. It's ours as well. So if you want victory and transformation, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we... um, We pray that your spirit would work to such an extent that he would expose in all of our lives those sins, those, those, that, that self-righteousness, that maybe judgmental attitude towards our neighbor or our community, and that he would expose that, those sins in our lives, even right now. But Lord, we'd also pray that the Spirit wouldn't leave us there, but that he would realize, we would realize through, your, through the Spirit's work that we have a great Savior who loves people running to him to find wholeness, cleanliness, and pardon. And so we pray, Lord, right now, that we would run to Jesus for that pardon, to find wholeness, to find our sins cleansed. And though, Lord, we feel often like failures and that we are not victorious, Lord, we pray that we would, through your Spirit, be reminded once more of Christ's victory and that his victory is ours. And that having having believed that, we pray that you would turn our sorrow into joy, that you would turn any hardship we're going through into an opportunity to praise you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.